Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and each week I bring you musings on the interconnections between mind, body, and soil. And it is such a pleasure to do so. I just, I just love it. I eat it all up. And this week, we really have, I was just having a conversation with someone on their podcast about really seeking to find the heart of all of these connections while having the knowledge that there is no heart and it's the seeking that is the gift in this space. But throughout the years, one of the the biggest doors that has opened for me around finding my space in the connectedness of life, in finding the cycle between birth, death, decay, and birth again, in finding a sense of community and reciprocity and really learning from a group of organisms outside of myself has been in the pursuit of better understanding the universe that exists beneath our feet in soil. I have been thinking a lot about how we glorify the telescope, that we look to the cosmos and have been captivated throughout time. But this boundary that exists between us and the ground beneath our feet, this crust of the earth that we can't see under, has created a different relationship between us and this organism that really supports life and is one of the most fascinating things I've ever dug into. And so as we dive into the microscope instead of the telescope with soil in this episode and in some coming episodes as well, I just wanted to share that note that this has really been a space where I've learned so much about reciprocity. And the two authors that I have on today's podcast, David Montgomery and Anne Bickley, literally wrote four books diving into this topic and how it connects back, how soil connects back to our food, our health, our culture, our civilization. And we'll explain at the end of the podcast, but as you look to add these books to your nightstand, as I am so sure that you will after hearing this, if you're not familiar with their work, their story arc of books that they've released really follows these threads of looking at how soil has influenced. And it starts starts with dirt, the erosion of civilizations, where there is an exploration of the history of farming and the relationship and correlations between topsoil erosion and the erosion of civilizations. It is at once history, geology, biology, and just truly an incredible book. And then they go on to explore really what's happening in soil in the hidden half of nature, the microbial roots of life and health, 
and then Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, and their latest book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, which is really the focal point of our conversation. Reading What Your Food Ate was, it was a space for me where I saw reflected in the work of these incredible authors and scientists so much of what I want to elucidate here on the podcast. It is very easy to read, fascinating, and takes you through this journey of how intimately we are connected to soil and how we can see our communities reflected in the community below ground. So often on this podcast, I have the opportunity to interview people whose work has been an inspiration to me that has been a teacher and a guidepost for me and has really anchored my own work in this world. And this is one of those situations. And as you just heard, Ann and Dave have an incredible series of books that are not to be missed and paring down this interview into something that could fit inside an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half was incredibly difficult. And so I have this massive document that I made while I was doing due diligence that served as my guidepost, but I just I just have to share this little bit of plight of the host of this podcast that sometimes we can't touch on all of the things and there are just more questions than there could ever be time. And it's just such a gift to sit down with people in the time that I do have. And so I hope, I really do hope that I do Anne and Dave's work justice within the context of this interview as I am just so happy to have had their work in the world. I want to do just a really quick touch on accounting here before we dive into the interview. And I want to thank you for the reciprocity that has unfolded for me in the context of this podcast. When I launched this, I didn't know if people would share some of my same curiosities or desire to have some of these conversations that were really near and dear to my heart. And it has just been such a beautiful act of reciprocity to hear that these interviews are landing for you, that you are enjoying them, and that we are sharing in this journey of learning about these interconnections and seeking to to get closer. And I don't think we can ever touch it to the heart of, of where all of these things begin to spin out into one another. And so I just want to thank you for that and for your support. Every week I read a podcast review from Apple Podcasts and offer an opportunity for us to connect in in the tangible plane that if you leave a review, I will then send you a little piece of snail mail as a thank you and to be in connection and reciprocity. And so this week's interview is from MEric318. And it just, it tickled me a lot. It's titled Refreshing. These podcasts are often so heady, you better have a notebook at hand to jot down all the references you'll need to look up later, but it is well worth it. 
Kate gives her guests ample space to articulate complex lines of thought. And as listeners, we get to sit back and drink it all in. Love it. I just, this this review tickled me because the idea that somebody is finding refreshing and heady in the same long format space that I love, it just made my heart sing. So thank you, Eric, for that awesome review. And without further ado, I really want to bring you the work of David Montgomery and Anne Bickley and just welcome you into their world. And if you haven't heard of them yet, I hope that some of their books make their their way to your nightstand soon. Here we go. So I'm sitting here with David Montgomery and Anne Buckley, and they just released their book, What Your Food Ate, and diving into their work. So your work was actually recommended to me by a friend at the beginning of the summer, and I felt shocked that I hadn't found it before. I, I, I just had missed, you know, the whole premise of this podcast is the intersection of mind, body, and soil. And so this feels, and you really wrote what I think is the best book on the topic that I could have imagined and, and getting to dive into it was such a pleasure. And so I thought we'd start off. I was listening to a talk that you gave David and you mentioned that the marriage of biology and geology makes for fertile soil. And I know that you (laughs) wrote this book as a husband and wife team, which is near and dear to my heart. I've worked with my husband. We've run business together for the last decade. And so I wonder if you might give us a little bit of your background as biologist and geologist. Yeah, sure. So I, I kind of consider myself, I'm a pretty wide ranging, maybe even free roaming, free range kind of a biologist. I like everything from the cellular and molecular level because that explains a lot of mechanistic type of things. But then I like to go up in scale into the larger world and the tangible things that we can touch and see and bring to our nose or into our mouth, you know, with flavor and fragrance and all of that. And it helps me make this link from the the invisible sort of end of biology up to the visible end, because that's, you know, frankly, where most people are at with biology is, you know, what can I see that's in front of me? How can I watch this plant grow or, or what have you? So I've always been enamored uh, with the outdoor world, which that takes you right away into the botanical world because these plants cannot run away from you. (laughs) Um, You can have a lot of different plants around you. And I've also been a person all my life who's been driven really by a lot of curiosity about either why things work the way they do or how things work. So biology is a kind of a, a great place for me. And I I like all the intersections of biology with so many other things. So, you know, to me, there's really not a lot of dividing lines between biology and ecology and botany and zoology and all of that kind of stuff. I agree. It's like, like we are talking about life here, life in all of its forms from the teeny tiny to, you know, the whale and elephant sized kinds of things. And so Dave, with his background in geology, then this is just another another part where my octopus arm can go out and intersect with 
oh, there's yet another thing about biology. And so I'll let you talk about the world of rocks. Uh, sure. Well, I'm a geologist by training, but I'm the kind of geologist that's known as a geomorphologist, which most people have never heard of, but is basically the kind of geologist that studies the evolution of topography. So what shapes the surface of the earth? And yeah, I've been fascinated by that since I loved maps as a kid. And it's the, it's the part of geology that, you know, we walk around on, we live on, that shapes our lives and looks at, you know, natural disasters, flooding, landslides, those kind of things. And so I studied soil erosion under natural systems for a long time before getting very interested in the role of human activity and in particular agriculture on soil erosion. So I came to the sort of thinking about soils from originally from the loss and degradation standpoint of it. Um, but the further you go into that and the more you look at how that has affected societies in the past and continues to influence society today and will affect societies in, well into the future, uh, you sort of start asking the question, of, well, how can you restore the damage that's been done to soils around the world? And that becomes, you know, in great part, a biological problem in looking at the restoration of soil life. And so I've been interested in the, the interaction of geomorphological or surface processes or erosional systems in human societies for a long time. And, you know, extending that to think about agriculture and the soil and biology and soil ecology is just kind of a natural extension of how I started looking into that. And it has sort of the happy confluence that that sort of overlaps what anime training is. In fact, the one, the one class we took together in graduate school was a soil science class. <laughs> you guys met in graduate school? I was just that a... um, technically no, but basically when I was in graduate school, we met and then she went back to graduate school at the same place I was at. So technically we met a little bit before we were both in graduate school, but in effect, yeah. yes. Yeah. I love it. And I love I love that somewhere in between, and I, I agree with what you said, Anne, that that it's all life, right? And when we begin to tease out those threads, we find that it's all interconnected. And that it leads us back to so many of the same places. I and and David love to get into a little bit about some of your work with dirt because that book was just it blew my mind. But I thought I wanted to lay the scene a little bit more. One of the quests that we've done on this podcast is really to explore the world beneath our feet. And I, I think about this a lot that I think that we know more as lay people anyway about space oftentimes than we do this entire universe that occurs just outside of our doorstep beneath our feet inside of the soil. And as I was thinking about how to start this podcast and thinking about your partnership and this biology and geology partnership led me into, I think the best place to start is with this idea of the partnership that happens at the soil level between plants and microbes and fungi and this beautiful exchange of nutrients, and I think we could call it reciprocity or symbiosis, that occurs that really starts off what our food ate. Yeah. I I think um, you had mentioned, you know, sort of the, the lay person view of things. And I think that a lot of what people understand about I guess just sort of life, biological life is what I'm speaking of here, is these classic kind of predator-prey or conflict-type situations. And so to discover that this world, as you had said, right, just right outside our doors, has these communities of life that are largely uh, about 
coordination and cooperation and about relationships is a really different way of looking at things. And with the soil in particular, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, it would be, it would have been interesting to have been alive 400, 450 million years ago as these first plants were emerging out of these watery environments and getting cast up on, on shore. And then, right. So you've taken this life form that's, you know, adapted to an aquatic environment and you throw it up onto land. And then it's like, well, how is this, how's this going to work? Well, those plants, I think were pretty, you know, I guess I will say on this podcast, I, I do think plants have some brains about them. These early land plants, of course, you know, they had no root systems. They had none of these relationships, root systems adapted to land. They didn't, they didn't have that. And they didn't have these relationships with bacteria and fungi. And land was not a very um, hospitable place for them. But, you know, over time and in the ways that sort of all these evolutionary processes take place, they did end up encountering and interacting and eventually forming partnerships and relationships with all of these life forms in the soil. So that was sort of, um, you know, I think we can, I think we can pretty safely call that the startup phase (laughs) (laughs) and the venture, you know, the venture capital, you know, if there was any at that time, it was, it was organic matter. It's what, it's what the microbial communities in the soil were sort of bringing to the table and the plant needed those, you know, those kinds of things, or at least what the microbes could do with that organic matter. So I I think there's this sort of whole, it's not exactly accurate to only think of um, ecology and biology in terms of this predator prey, you know, nature red in tooth and claw. There is that obviously, right. You know, you've got killer whales eating seals and, that sort of thing, but it really, it runs, it runs the gamut. I love that. I think that I had never considered that that is, you know, ab- above land that we often view biology as this, this space that is in conflict that really, I had never considered that, but here beneath the soil, you find that this is really a collaboration and that there, there is community in that space and, and an aspect of reciprocity that I think also exists above land. And, and I also, I hadn't considered the, evolutionary track of plants coming out of water in the same way that we emerged out of water and formed our own symbioses with things like, you know, the ancient bacteria that became our mitochondria, whatever that is, that have have really driven us. I'm curious, Dave, how rocks become a part of this, that that this this piece of organic matter and life where it's storing all of these nutrients that fungi and bacteria can then liberate and, and that that really becomes the start of things where that begins to tie into this. Yeah. Well, you know, when you, when you think about what it takes to support life, uh, you know, we first go to, well, like sunlight and photosynthesis in terms of, you know, plant life and then what feeds animal life. And that involves a few simple elements, right? You're taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, water from the from the soil. Plants combine that through photosynthesis, 
And so you've got carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. We know that plants need nitrogen at some level, and there's nitrogen in the atmosphere, and certain bacteria will help sort of crack that, that double-bonded, that triple-bonded double nitrogen molecule to make that bioavailable. But that's nowhere near all that life needs. I mean, we our bodies and, and the body of every organism is made of other things too, iron and copper, zinc, you know, mineral elements, and those ultimately come from rocks. Um, yeah, potassium, uh, phosphorus, there's a whole you know, slew of elements that, that are needed to create life beyond the simple stuff. And ultimately, that stuff all comes from rocks. And you know, if you take a piece of granite, stick it out in the sidewalk, it takes forever to break down. But if you stick it in the soil, if you stick it in a moist environment with, with some life forms already in it that can produce acids, for example, those rocks can start to break down. Or even if you get a little carbon dioxide and water to mix in within a void space in the soil, that creates carbonic acid, which can start to dissolve rocks. But that happens, you know, it happens slowly. So one of the key things for uh, for life and it's sort of it's, it's conquest and colonization of this planet is in where do you get those mineral elements? And in the oceans, a lot of it comes from the sediments that are delivered from erosion off the continents or from, you know, hydrothermal vents that are cooking stut rocks away and down in the deep sea, gradually liberating elements to get into seawater. But on land... Um, a lot of that's coming down from so- coming from soils as as rocks break down, and so you can, in one way, you can view soils as rotten rocks, rocks <laughs> that have kind of like you know decayed at the surface of the earth, and, and and life helps that process along. But the other thing that life does to basically keep access to those elements, because things like zinc are not very common geologically, so there's a lot of recycling that goes on. Uh, and that recycling happens in the soil, and soil life is a major element of that, sort of the engine of recycling dead things back into elements and compounds that the new life can take up, new plants can take up through their roots so that then they can grow and prosper and that animals can eat them and, and so on through the system. So when we think about the connection of rocks to all this, um, you know, it's really sort of at the found- one of the foundational pieces of life, but one of the big challenges for life over the last, you know, hundreds of millions of years, has been getting those elements out of rocks and then keeping them in biological circulation. And that's what a lot of those partnerships, those symbiotic relationships in the soil are about, either provisioning those elements to to life or keeping them in play, keeping the, the great wheel of life spinning as what was dead becomes living again, becomes dead again, living again, on and on and on. Um, and if you want to run a really weird thought experiment, think about what would happen if all the life that had ever been on this planet never decayed, that never got recycled. The planet would be buried under dead things. So, you know, can the ability to for life to maintain itself depends very much on getting elements out of rocks and recycling those elements. And soil life is sort of you know the big unsung heroes of that of that of maintaining that through time. And in terms of maintaining the fertility of our agricultural lands when we look more self-centeredly today. Mm-hmm. I love that view of the way that we are sort of a part of this massive cycle of deep time through the transmission of largely minerals and this aspect of how life really requires decay, which any any gardener knows and think as a butcher and then we raise all of our own meat, that that is very clear to us too, that there's this reciprocal relationship even once you move above ground between perhaps ruminants and grasses or or 
something of the sort and that the, these nutrient cycles become really vital to life, whether we're talking about minerals or phytochemicals or the way that a rumen turns plants into omega-3 fatty acids. And, and I think that's kind of my next piece here is just this curiosity around nutrient cycling as we begin to maybe get out of the rhizosphere and, and up above ground that there, there continues to be an aspect of reciprocity, at least as, as I've seen it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I, I think so. And just your description there of kind of all of the nutrient cycling and the different ways in which that manifests always makes me think about where this, what makes this all possible. And it is the sun and the ability of plants, right? They are the only creatures that so far have been able to, with their green bodies, take that sunlight and turn it into energy and build the components of their body with that. And then of course, animals, including us are then we're, we're, we're really on the, you know, riding on the shoulders and the backs of the botanical world. It's not, you know, the other way around. Although you look at agriculture and gardening and for how, you know, that's been such a mainstay, I would say in human history and probably even going back to, you know, early human ancestors, maybe some of whom had figured out, oh, you know, I can always return to this patch of ground at this, you know, time of year and find such and such a forage or a food. And maybe, you know, at one point they decided, I think I might want to protect this. I think I might, you know, put a little something around this and, and see. And so that, that, what that turned into was then this long relationship between plants and people where, we wanted to have them around us and we, you know, started with agriculture and cultivation and, and here we are, you know, thousands of years later, you know, not, not all of us maybe would agree that what we've, our relationship with plants is, I don't know how to put it, but there's things in my world and in my mind, more interesting than a monoculture of corn or a monoculture of soybeans, or even, you know, a monoculture of tomatoes. So it's, there's a lot there to think about in our relationship with plants, I think, but that what it all stems from, and this is why I think some of this like indoor agriculture stuff is so nutty. It's like, okay, let me get this straight. This one organism on our planet that can harness and use sunlight, you're going to put that inside of a building, cut off the sun and use other resources to make the kind of, you know, the spectrum of light that works for photosynthesis. And I just, you know, that to me is, well, anyway, people who have read the books or heard me talk would probably know what I think about that. So. It's unfathomable. We talk a lot. I end up in a lot of conversations here about when we take on this sort of mechanistic reductionist approach to everything, whether it's, you know, looking at how you grow plants indoors and it's just to assume that it's just the single spectrum of light that allows this or that you apply these fertilizers and that's the same as the incredible complexity that happens inside the soil. I, I mean, in my opinion, it, it there's a lot of hubris that goes into that. And I think we see a lot of that reductionism rippled throughout not just agriculture, but culture as a whole and, and the approach that we take. 
It's it's often uh, much simpler to sort of deal with things by dividing them into individual parts and trying to figure out how each part works. But you know, the, the analogy of like an old an old like a uh, an old wa- a watch, a physical watch, an old school watch. You can understand how all the individual pieces work and still not be able to put it back together. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I could probably take one apart, but there's no way I can get it to work again. I love that. And that's, in essence, that's sort of the, the reductionist versus holistic view of things in a nutshell, is that, you know, understanding how a gear works is reductionist, understanding how the watch works is holistic. And it's, you know, it's, it's easier to understand things when we break them into their pieces, but that doesn't mean we necessarily understand how the whole will work. And the soil is, I think, a really, really good example of that, where we can think about growing a single crop or treating the land in a singular way or doing a a single thing to it or studying the effects of a single practice, whether that's plowing, whether that's cover crops, whether that's a monoculture or a crop rotation. When, But when we look at the system as, when we look at the soil as an integrated ecological system, the power of understanding how all those things work together or not is really where I think it, the reductionist view short changes our degree to, for understanding things and opens the door for uh, unanticipated side effects of things that we originally thought were good ideas. And that, you know, modern, modern conventional agriculture, I think, is a really good example of, of, of that playing out where you know, decisions that were made over the last century in terms of how to you know, modernize agriculture uh, resulted in, in unanticipated side effects because we didn't completely understand the system. And if there's one thing that I've learned, whether it's in geology or, or, or looking over the shoulder of biologists or, or looking into the soil, it's that you know, we don't have a complete understanding of nature, and we probably never will. And so the idea of breaking it into bite-sized pieces to understand it only gets us so far. And I think where it's gotten us is, and I think we're seeing some of those unintended consequences, both within the soil, you know, and, and it's funny, my next my next thing to kind of talk about was the state of our soil currently, as we apply, you know, a billion pounds of glyphosate, and we have chemical fertilizers, and we've lost, you know, estimates putting it at half of our endowment of soil organic matter. And at the same time, we're seeing a pretty precipitous decline in human health. And so I, but I thought we'd start with this idea of what, where are we now? What is the state of soil and where has this reductionist view had unintended consequences? Yeah. Well, so those are sort of two separable things. We'll deal with the reductionist part uh, uh, later and talk first about the, the state of the soil because they, they are they are pretty different. And the state of the soil, you hit on it. There's the, the estimates globally in terms of the amount of uh, uh, soil organic matter that's been degraded uh, is, is roughly 50%. And in the U.S., it's roughly the same, r- roughly half. Um, there's some pretty good studies that have looked at that from from both global and regional perspectives. Something like a third of the world's potentially arable land has been taken out of agricultural production over the last 10,000 years as a result of land degradation. You know, and some of that's in areas of the world where you can find Roman tax records of you know, large wheat harvests where you really aren't growing much today. Places like uh, northern Libya or Syria, which places that helped feed Rome once the Romans destroyed the soils of central Italy, but that today we have a hard time viewing as an agricultural breadbasket. Why? Because, well, they eroded off and degraded their soil a long time ago, and those civil, those societies in those areas are still impoverished as a result of that thousands of years later. 
So the state of the world soils are you know, are troubling. There was a UN report from 2015 on the global state of the soils uh, that concluded that we're losing about a third of a percent a year of our ability to grow food on this planet as a result of ongoing soil loss and degradation. And that third of a percent a year, you know, it's not a big annual number. It's a small amount each year. But if you let that play out over 100 years, it turns into 30 percent. Um, and that's the kind of you know scenario that a, a geologist would run in terms of you know oh a hundred years that's like you know a down payment on tomorrow in terms of geologic time, and yet if we've already lost you know roughly a third of our ability to grow food or a third of our productive cropland and we're on track to lose another third this century, that ought to be sort of you know a a screaming alarm at a planetary scale saying you know we really can't keep doing things the way that we've been doing them if that's the prognosis for the year 2100, when we'll have more mouths to feed than we do today. So the state of the world soils are, you know, I would characterize it as, you know, degraded and in need of restoration. And that's what Growing Our Evolution was about. Uh, the dirt, dirt, the first book that we wrote on, on the soil issue was about the, how we got to where we are today, the downside, the destruction. Um, the Hidden Half of Nature, the previous book that Ann and I wrote about, was more about understanding all those symbiotic relationships that we we're talking about, sort of how how it is that that works and what's the what's the microbial ecology behind all this. And then Growing a Revolution looked at the feasibility of actually restoring the world's agricultural soils. Um, and I think I've been on enough farms now that have already done it that I'm 100% sure that it's feasible. But it's one of the biggest underappreciated uh, planetary infrastructure projects that humanity really needs to embark on for the next century if people in subsequent centuries are going to have anywhere near the ability to grow food that we do today. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's an interesting question in that I don't think most people realize sort of how dire the situation is with soil. And that's that's interesting to me because at least, you know, you compare that to sort of what our awareness and concern, or at least some of us, I'm hoping more and more, is around what's happening with the atmosphere and with climate. Because that's also, that's also an invisible world in the sense that, you know, these gases, these atmospheric gases that have gotten out of balance, we can't, we can't see that, but we really you know, are really seeing the effects of that in various kinds of weird weather events and, you know, sea level rise and things like that. And I don't think people realize that we're heading into, you know, kind of a future where, I mean, I was just listening to the stats that Dave was saying, and it's like, wow, really, we're heading down the road of, you know, having two thirds uh, or so, you know, by the end of the this century of arable soils that, we've just chiseled away at and just chiseled away at. So while that's sobering, the one thing I also think about is that anytime you get a a sort of a natural system or an ecosystem that we've just like hammered away at, you start lightening up on what it is that you're doing that's harming that system. And all of a sudden nature can like gets a breather gets a really big breather and can start on her own, you know, through some of these regenerative natural processes from, you know, nutrient cycling to moisture holding capacity in the soil and so on. All of that stuff starts to improve. And so it's, what's interesting to me about life is how life 
can kind of bootstrap itself up from these, you know, not great situations if we give it the space, the resources, and the things that it needs. Because as soon as I'm just thinking about back to, you know, maybe the 50s or 60s when so many of America's rivers and streams were polluted. Why? Because people actually poured, you know, toxic products in there. I mean, we physically dumped garbage in there, you know, chemical plants were discharging. And then as soon as that was cut back on, I mean, it's not completely cleaned up, but it's certainly better than it was. Wow. The fish started to come back and people could start swimming in the waters again and drinking water was, was better off. And so that, that's just to me, always such a powerful lesson about how resilient a natural system can be if we just sort of lay off the stress a little bit. It's just like a person, you know, you've been through stressful times or you're missing out, you know, whatever circumstances are around your, your lack of food or insufficient nutrition. As soon as that starts to come back online, wow, you're feeling better. You can function more. Your brain is working all that kind of thing. And so And I think that's something that everybody can understand, especially because we've all probably been in places with our health or our bodies where it's like, oh, I'm not doing so great today, but hey, what if I did this other thing? I wonder, you know, if I would feel feel better. And sure enough, you know, most of the time you do when you start tweaking things. Mm -hmm. I love that message of resiliency. And I think it's a really important one. I know I've seen that over the, I've worked in regenerative ag for the last decade and I've, I've seen a lot of that through time. And I think it's really heartening both on a, the level of environmental and land health, as well as on the level of human health, which really are just one and the same. And, and this idea that we're separate from nature, this, this myth of separation is something I always want to break down a little bit that, you know, where, it's the same. Soil health is human health. Land health is human health. And you can see that in all of the ways that it's sort of being mirrored back to us in, in current times. And, and just like we kind of said at the beginning that, that chronic illness, you know, now more than 50% of Americans report having at least one chronic illness with 25% of Americans having two or more, uh, is is on the rise and has correlated to some extent with the sort of modern agricultural endeavors. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it 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 it's definitely concerning, and I I think at one time when more of us grew our own food and raised the animals that were you know landing on our dinner plates, I think we very much understood that the functioning and health of the land you know, rippled through to crops and the animals and that, you know, what eventually got brought into the hearth in the home was a reflection of what was happening out there in the environment. And I think, you know, Hippocrates, the sort of, you know, the father of medicine, he wrote these like ancient philosophers, you know, they, they didn't have obviously, you know, social media and all these devices. There just wasn't a lot to do. So they sat around and they thought and they wrote and they observed what was happening. And he wrote a really, Hippocrates wrote a really interesting treatise called Airs, Waters, and Places. And in this, he explored what the sort of the qualities and characteristics of the land were. And he started to hypothesize about what this meant for human health and well-being. It was his observation 
you know, the people who lived in places with, you know, in those times would be called like, you know, swampy, dank water, cold and chill, you know, temperatures that those, the, the health of those people was not as good as somebody who lived, you know, in a, a warmer, drier place, but with ample, you know, ample water, clean water. And so those were, and of course you're the person living in the dank swampland or the person living up on the plateau you know, because you each talk to each other, you know, oh, really, you've, you know, you've got whatever the, you know, the bone, the bone disease thing or so we, we knew this. And it's just been that modern life has put a lot of layers of stuff in between us and the realization that we are truly connected to the environmental conditions out there in the places that we live. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think too, you know, as we were, as you were talking about the degradation of soils over time and, and what that's meant, it's something I think you wrote in, in dirt that a farmer might not see it within, might not see the solid evidence of it within his own lifetime or her own lifetime, but over the generations that really begins to compound and I think that human health in some ways is the same way that we, there were snapshots and there were people that really saw this connection, whether it was Hippocrates or whether it was Weston A. Price and begin to put some of these pieces together. Eve Balfour, who you talk about. And I, I just loved that section that really begin to, to make some of these connections, but they're not always held onto throughout history that we don't always really get it or take it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not terribly good at thinking about and managing sort of problems that uh, play out over sort of a whole lifetime or a long time. And, and there's you know, some psychological research behind, you know, we're good, we're fairly good at focusing in crisis management or sort of dealing with things, you know, at least some of us, sort of, some of us, <laughs> on certain things. but it, it's the slow motion crises that are actually really hard for us to deal with, whether individually or collectively. And, you know, the climate issue is a big example of that. The soil issue is a parallel example of that. But when we think about the relationship of say farming practices and diet to health, it's another example of that because, you know, there's no single meal. I mean, unless you're you know, having dinner with Vladimir Putin and dining on polonium tea, there's no there's no single meal that's going to completely wreck your health. But it, what we eat over the course of our lives, and whether it is you know short on mineral micronutrients, short on phytochemicals, has the wrong mix of fats, all the things we were talking about earlier about things that agriculture can, has a big influence on. You know, that can basically add up over time in terms of our health, both individually and also in terms of public health, the sort of the, the general health across the populace. And it, it's hard to connect soil health directly to human health, in part because you know, there's a lot of things that affect our health. There's our genes. There, there is what we eat. There's whether we get any exercise, our lifestyle. There's the where we live. Do we live in a swamp? Do we live on a mountaintop? And there, there's how, you know, where our ancestors came from relative to where we live today and how our bodies may be adapt, well adapted to that ge kind of geography. But what we tried to go through in What Your Food Ate is to add the other dimension of, well, how we raise our food and how that affects the mineral abundance, the phytochemical abundance, and the fat profile of what does get into our bodies and connect that to what me medical science has looked at in terms of what do antioxidants, mineral micronutrients, and, and you know, anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory fats do for our health over the course of a lifetime? And that's where I think sort of a, a new 
a renewed focus on thinking about diet through the lens of how things are raised actually offers you know an opportunity to think about positive changes to not just our individual health but to public health in general through trying to connect agricultural policies how we farm to what's in what we're eating and how that affects our health I'm curious if you think that that provides us a sort of inroads into becoming more curious about what's happening in some of these systems, whether it's soil beneath the ground, that there's a sort of buy-in. And I know I recently talked to Stefan Van Vliet uh, about phytochemical and the dark matter of nutrition. And we've talked a lot about polyunsaturated fatty acids on this podcast. It's one of my talking about seed oils and that ratio and finding that balance is something really passionate about. And I I wonder as a species that I think often has a lot of myopia, which we we sort of just discussed, and maybe some narcissism as well, if we can apply it to our own health, which maybe we are having a more experiential experiential happening of versus this sort of intangible, invisible. I love what you said, Anne, that, you know, whether it's climate change or the soil, it feels very invisible. But if that provides us with a, a buy-in. Yeah. So, so is your question sort of then what do we get if, if, you know, I guess on the one hand, maybe we are hearing things or seeing things out there in the media and it seems like, oh, that's somebody else versus when we make the connection to, oh, actually I am that somebody else. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, it's, it's me that this is about. And, and, uh, that, that's really kind of a, oh, it's not exactly a paradigm shift for, um, the person who's made that realization. Cause I think at, at heart, and it makes good sense, we are all interested in our own health and our well-being. And so on that, you know, kind of by that metric, yeah, we are all a little narcissistic, but that, I think that term actually applies to somebody who's like way over beyond the, the natural self-interest in getting the, you know, getting your basic needs met. So when I, you know, for us, when we started doing all this research on how an animal's diet influences their fat profile it really and then you know and then you're like oh well, let's see yeah we do eat meat and dairy and so yeah we need to be like you know let's it's time to pay way more we it's not that we were ignorant of these things but it was it was as soon as we especially just you know the omega-3s and how they've dropped out of our diet in other ways and that animal products at least for those, um, you know, who are not living near marine resources, it's a great way to get these really healthy fats back into your diet. You know, it's so long as at the same time you're, you know, getting kicking some of the omega-6 sources out so you can get, as you've talked about, back to a sort of optimal balance on those things. So it's, being self-interested is good so long as it doesn't get into, you know, the territory of avarice and greed and narcissism and that we never forget. It's always important to think about, you know, our fellow person out there and what is going on for them in terms of their hardships and what they need. 
Yeah, and it could be it could be a little abstract for people to sort of think about, you know, um, why they should care about the health of the land or the health of the soil. But if they can understand how that can ripple up into affecting things in our diet that influence our health, it becomes a lot more personal and I think a lot more uh, motivating on the consumer end of things. Thank you for for entertaining me. I think I've just I hold this curiosity about how we can become more curious uh, as a whole about the soil and and then hopefully find some more spaces where we become collaborators as well. And so I appreciate you humoring. Yeah, I know soil has an image problem. <laughs> right? I mean we tend to think of it as dirt. I mean, that was the title of the first book in the series that we've written. And it was very intentional because it would get more people's interest and get people to read it and realize, well, why is soil more important than just being thought of as dirt? But, you know, we take it for granted. We don't, most people don't tend to think that much about it, um, let alone how the state of it may influence um, the, the productivity of agriculture uh, today, uh, let alone the connections to our own health. And if we're really going to think about reforming farming practices over this century, you know, it has to start with how we conceive of, how we think about the land, how we think about the soil. And I think if we can, if we can tie the connections to our own health, it opens the door to people thinking more broadly about, well, what is it? And that, to your point about curiosity about it, maybe they'd want to understand a little more about it. Maybe they would just respect it a little bit more and not take it for granted and maybe stop treating soil like dirt. <laughs> that was a that was that was a really good pun there. I really appreciated that. I think maybe this is a good time to bring in your book Dirt, which I think is one of the I, it is such a different lens on looking through this what West Jackson calls the problem of agriculture and the way that it ties in not just to land health or geology or biology, but honestly into socio-political systems and to the boom and bust cycles of civilization. And and while, again, that's a multifactorial thing, we can't point at one thing and say that did it, that soil erosion has really shaped not just our landscape, but the landscape of human history and, and power dynamics. Yeah, you can the take home message from the book at one, one level. One of the take homes was that the the way we've treated the land agriculturally has essentially set the stage for how history has played out in different parts of the world, making certain societies more vulnerable to disruption by climate or or war with their neighbors, and making other societies more powerful temporarily while they had a surplus of a very productive land and a small population and they could thereby grow. And so that, that was a fun book to write in terms of looking at that lens. And, you know, I started writing it thinking I was writing a history of soil erosion. Um, and I ended it th realizing that I'd written was a history of farming <laughs> because that really was effectively the, the main vehicle and mechanism that has affected land around the world for the last 10,000 years since the dawn of agriculture. And you'll find a lot of environmental histories that look at the role of deforestation causing soil erosion that impacted ancient civilizations. And what I argued in dirt was essentially, well, it wasn't just the ax. It wasn't just cutting down the trees. It was the plow that followed. It was how we kept the plant cover off the land. Mm -hmm. um, that was the real sort of villain in that tale. And therein lies, you know, the recipe for thinking about how to reverse it and undo it, you know, stop tilling is, is, uh, or reduce the disturbance of the soil so that if you're going to till, do it 
minimally, you know, and that's one of the big themes when you connect the biology back into thinking about agricultural productivity and soils and how you might restore fertility to all the degraded lands that I was talking about in dirt is thinking about, you know, how do you minimize the disturbance of that biology? And in effect, what we argue in the new book is that it's not just minimizing the physical disturbance, but also minimizing the chemical disturbance. So if you're an organic farmer, you might want to till less. If you're a conventional farmer, you should probably be using less nitrogen. You should probably be tilling less as well, unless you're a no-till farmer. But using less nitrogen, using less glyphosate, you know, trying to minimize the, the chemical and physical disturbances that interrupt those symbiotic relationships in the soil that help set the table, if you'll permit another part, <laughs> uh, for, for you know, a healthy food supply, a food supply that could uh, better nourish the world and not just feed the world. Mm, I love that last piece. And I think I was curious from your perspective, because the plow really becomes this character within the set of dirt that uh, maybe, maybe even a little villainous at times in, in how, <laughs> in how much it changed the fertility of these soils. And I think that now we have the plow, but we also have the advent really of chemical agriculture. And and I'm curious what your take on this is. Now they're together, right? We have these two forces, both the plow and chemical agriculture, lots of fields open and barren and and as well as a decrease in diversity into monocrops, which I know, Anne, you mentioned at the beginning. We have these just fields and fields of corn or soy or peas. And how how that has begun to shift things for soil as well. Yeah, uh, tillage, plowing, uh, does sort of two things to the soil. The first, I mean, it, it basically, by inverting the soil and breaking it up, uh, it leaves the soil vulnerable to erosion. If you go to most places around the world in a natural ecosystem, whether grasslands or a forest, there's not a lot, lot of, there's not a lot of loose, bare earth at the surface. Nature tends to clothe herself in plants, and that helps to keep the soil on the land. It helps to build up organic matter, and tillage reverses that temporarily. And so if you then get rain falling on a freshly tilled field, you can cause, you know, a century's worth of erosion in an afternoon. And so there's that the problem of soil of, of the loss of the soil, soil erosion. But the other thing that tillage does is it, it basically accelerates the breakdown of soil organic matter. Uh, by oxygenating the soil and stimulating bacterial life, it can break, uh, accelerate the breakdown of organic matter, and it can disrupt my, uh, fungal uh, mycorrhizae, essentially the, effectively the root-like aspects of uh, fungus that are fungi that can part that is a key part of their symbiotic relationship with crops. It's how they go excavate things like phosphorus particles out of phosphorus elements out of the soil and deliver it to plants in exchange for sugars that the plants make. So, so tillage can generate a short-term burst of fertility by accelerating the cycling and, and degradation. But if you keep it up for long enough, you wear out the batteries you basically wear down soil organic matter. And there's a study in the journal Nature back in, I think it was 1994, that concluded that you could basically continuously till in uh, you know very healthy fertile soils in temperate regions for about 50 years, maybe 100 at the outside, so half a century to a century before you burn through the organic matter. And in the tropics, it's five to 10 years, which is like hardly anything. Yeah, it's nothing. But when you think about even a century over the course of agriculture and its history for the last 10,000 years, that's not a lot of time either. And so the there's this problem with tillage in the sense that it can be to an advantage for a farmer this year 
but it comes at the price of, of the, our ability to sustain production on that land over subsequent years. And synthetic nitrogen fertilizers have a similar issue in terms of what they do to the relationship between crops and their microbial symbionts in the soil. Uh, and in effect, most plants, many crops, if you are, are that are, if they're grown in a nitrogen-rich environment, they don't put as much effort into recruiting microbial partners in the soil. Why? Because it actually costs them energetically to support those microbial partners. So if they're getting all they need in terms of what it takes to grow, uh, and nitrogen is the big one in terms of just sort of the growth of plants, um, then they don't invest so much in their microbial partners and they don't get as much of a return in things they need to be healthy, which are the mineral micronutrients, because they basically shut off their partners that, are, that were supplying them. In other words, plants can get lazy, in effect, under in a very nitrogen-rich environment. And when you put those two things together, it's a recipe for once you go to intensive mechanized tillage and environments where you're apply, liberally applying a lot of synthetic nitrogen fertilizers, it basically decreases that what we can call the native fertility of the land, the ability of the land to support agriculture without inputs, but it also, and thereby, it increases your dependence on those inputs. So it can result in what we call sort of the agrochemical treadmill, where once you're hooked, you're hooked. And that's not a recipe for sustainably feeding the world. And it's also not terribly efficient. When we look at um, you know, a lot of the arguments for separating animal husbandry from cropping and going to monocultures in the mid-20th century were about agricultural efficiency, producing more of certain crops on a particular piece of land. But in doing so, we essentially undermined some of the natural mechanisms through which nature was actually brutally efficient at supporting the proliferation of life on Earth. And therein lies sort of a deep irony in terms of, of what modern agriculture has done. But the thing that I find I sort of take away from a lot of the, the look into this that Anne and I have done is that it's all reversible. You know, we can actually turn it around. We just have to think about the soil differently. We have to think about farming practice differently. And, you know, going through the, adopting a combination of no-till and diverse cover crops and growing a diversity of crops can actually reverse a lot of the damage in, in remarkably short order. And there's a very optimistic, I think, path ahead. But the question is whether or not we'll adopt it. Yeah. Before, I'd love to talk about what it means to adopt that and what it means to not just feed the world, but to nourish it, which I, I really loved that. I, I have to ask, I'm curious, as you see, as you both see this sort of jump into chemical agriculture, and I mean, Earl Butts, right, Secretary of Ag under Nixon says, it get big or get out. Do you see this repetition of the cycle that you described in, in Dirt, where there is this boom or bust? And one of the things that really struck me is we move from individual landowners working the land and seeing it and having having an investment in that in that daily life to single sort of estate landowners with with a very different work structure and i think that we've really hit that place here in the united states and and one of my hopes in in sort of a hopeful outlook is that there has been a lot of this sort of returning home to rural areas and to the land of of first generation farmers i mean like myself and my husband grew up in cities and came back to to do this yeah i I actually one of the things that turned me into a bit of an optimist on these issues was the um realization that adopting regenerative practices can help make, you know, smaller and modest sized farms profitable again. 
um, and, and help to reverse the Earl Butt syndrome um, in terms of get bigger, get out. And, you know, and that comes around because if you're, if you can use fewer inputs, you don't need as much capital to actually get into it. And if it can help make modest size farms fairly profitable. And there, there's lots of different sort of uh, niches, shall we say, in farming from, you know, small scale farms in and with and around urban environments, focusing mostly on vegetables uh, or large scale grain operations uh, in the, the Dakotas, for example, or big livestock operations or others that integrate animal, hus- reintegrate animal husbandry and, and, and cropping systems. Um, and what I've been impressed by is how in each of those kinds of settings, adopting more regenerative practices can help the bottom line for the farm and the farmers. And if that holds true in general, and I've yet to see anything that suggests that it won't, it's, it holds some promise that more people will be finding it more attractive to return to farming as, a, um, as an engaging, challenging, interesting, and profitable living. Yeah, it, it, that story sort of reminds me at our local farmer's market here, there's uh, I always look forward every spring when the first farmer's market starts to hit. It isn't the, the well, anyway, there's several farmer's markets around Seattle. This is a more seasonal one, and it tends, it tends to attract uh, some of the, I guess, the smaller of the small farmers. And the, this couple showed up this spring, and I thought, huh, never seen them around before. What, what, I've got to get over here and talk to them and see what they're up to. And first of all, I really liked, they had a really nice selection of produce. They had, uh, they, the name of their farm is Deer Table, D-E-A-R, and then Table. And they had this, yeah, they had this um, whiteboard out that just was, you know, okay, here's our crops, here's what's here this week and how much it costs. And then at the bottom, I thought, this is really what it's all about. And they said, you know, we... We were uh, we were in tech, which you know is not surprising in our area around Seattle. A lot of people are, but then a lot of people also are not finding that very satisfying. It's not really, I guess, what I would say. You know, hitting the soul gears that we all need to to feel fulfilled. And so they said, you know, we're trying out this farming thing. And so you know, you had mentioned kind of you know getting back to the land and getting back in touch. And so that's what this this couple did. And down at the bottom, it says, but we're not going to make it unless you buy stuff from us. So let's, you know, let's just acknowledge, you know, in a way, you know, this wasn't written out, but it's like, oh yeah, that's right. If we want these farmers who are growing this kind of produce that I want to eat to be coming into my community again and again, then yeah, I do want to support them. So in some ways, you know, I like, I haven't figured it out yet, but there's this Instead of, you know, get big or get out, I think it maybe ought to be revisit small to get back in, to mm. get back in with your community, to get back in with people, to get back in to the land and start, you know, stitching together these really fundamental relationships that, that have always made human beings a part of landscapes and a part of nature and a part of the places that they live. So this couple's having, I mean, I don't think they're just putting a show on, but I mean, they are like grinning from ear to ear when they show up at the farmer's markets. And I think in part, they're like, wow, people are buying our stuff. Um, so did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. They've got really <laughs> great looking produce. They've, and they figure out, you know, some vendors... 
I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm like, look, you got to figure out something better than whatever it is you're doing because, you know, your carrots, your lettuces, all of this stuff looks to me like you picked it two days ago, left it in the car, and now you're here trying to sell it. It's just like not, you know, not when I can go over to Deer Table where they've figured out, I don't know what it, you know, th- this is the job of a farmer to figure all this stuff out so that it gets, you know, in front of a consumer who says, yeah, that's what I want to buy. And that's the kind of thing I want to support. Now I don't, you know, I want farmer's markets. So I usually go around and get at least something even from the, you know, like potatoes are fairly, you know, easy thing to transport around and you don't necessarily have to, you know, dug them up two days ago. So this is just all in the way of, I, I guess, saying that I think farming has, you know, were I in my twenties and thirties at, at this point in my life, I would have, I would very seriously consider probably getting into some kind of a farm situation, especially with, you know, a background in biology and plants and everything. It's like, to me, well, that's, that's agriculture, right? Isn't that about like, you know, being outside, figuring out how these plants grow, you know, how are you going to deal with your pest problem? And then, you know, whereas, you know, if you teamed up with some animal person, then they're going to bring the animal into that setting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Into that (laughs) setting with the plants. So yeah, I really, I really think maybe we need a, uh, to start all of us talking about a rejoinder to this, you know, get big or get out. It's like, no, get small, get real. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Revisit small to get back in. I, I thought that was, that was so fantastic. And I love having a rejoinder for this because I think that you touched on something really important that, that I think can't be overlooked, which is we have to have financial sustainability within these smaller systems to support the long-term sustainability of, of this being a way to rebuild that soil endowment and to have some resiliency and to create community, maybe in the collaborative image of what happens beneath the, you know, beneath the ground inside the soil. I think that that's vitally important. And this is a tough, I mean, it's a tough business. I know farmers that operate on one to 2% margins. And so that has to, that has to shift at the farming level and at the consumer level, right? Our buy-in, we spend about 11% of our income on food here in the United States. Yeah. Back in the 1950s, we spent twice as much on food as we did on healthcare. Now it's the opposite. We spend twice as much on healthcare as we do on food. So, you know, how much of that increase in expenditure on healthcare is due to, you know, what we've done to the modern diet? You know, we could debate that some other day. But the reality is, is that we've kind of inverted those two so that, you know, now that food is cheap, healthcare is expensive. Yeah. I mean, I think there's other, there's other forces at play with what has gone on with healthcare and health service delivery, of course. But, but, Mm It's still it's still worth pointing out that our agriculture policy in this country has in the last three to four to five to six decades, at least, has become a bigger part of what's affecting the health of Americans than I think anybody ever used to think about. And I think that comes about in several ways. And part of it is what, you know, really what the focus of what your food ate what we're trying to put our finger on in that book is, look, the kinds of farm practices that consumers and government directly and indirectly support are actually affecting 
the life in the soil that is the whole reason that we get these, what I call the fab four into our plant and animal foods. So, you know, quick review, the fab four, these are our phytochemicals, micronutrients, a healthy balance of fats in our animal foods. And one thing that people don't necessarily think about is a nutrient, but it, and this is where we expand our definition of nutrients. This is, we're talking about the dark matter of nutrition here. It's this whole array of microbial metabolites So these are compounds and molecules made by organisms that live in the soil that get into the foods that make it into the human diet. And so these fab four are really what we want to be thinking about with agricultural policy. And if the policies are supporting practices that get those fab four into our plant and animal foods. And right now with the focus long being and still being uh, almost entirely on yield, we've just, we've just completely, we just lost sight of, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all understand that yield is important so that we have enough, but what, what is the quality of that yield? I mean, I see this parallel with sort of what, how we think about health and our metric. And especially these days with COVID, you know, we probably all have just heard the news for the second year in a row. Longevity of Americans has declined by whatever it is, several, whatever it is, it's declined. Three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. Three or four years. So this is the yield model. All we're looking at is number of years that a person lives, but what we don't consider and what's not talked about is, is the quality of life of that person. Health span. And, and, yeah. And, you know, public health lingo, that's called, it's the disability adjusted life years. So, Hey, that's great. If you live till your, you know, your late mid, mid to late eighties into your early nineties. But what if since age 65, you've been unable to take a walk, you're on all kinds of medications for all kinds of conditions who wants, you know, a third a quarter or a third of your life spent with that kind of quality. And so likewise with agriculture, with our crops and our animals, who wants, who wants foods in the human diet that have impacted the land, have impacted, you know, plants, have impacted animals in ways that aren't good or healthy for these other life forms. None of us, none of us signed up for that. And I truly believe that, you know, none of us want that either, but it's just difficult to kind of, you know, get this ship turned around. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's been, and I think I have a lot of hope that we are turning it around and to go back to, because I think what you're talking about in many ways is nourishment that we are not, we are not nourished in our bodies. We are not nourished in our communities. We are not nourished in our, our ways of, of building these systems. And if we go back to what you said earlier, that it's not about, it's not just how do we feed the world? It's how do we nourish it? And I think that question is, is really exemplary. And I want to go back to that before we, we wrap up, like, what, what does it mean to nourish it? And I think in many ways you might've just answered it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's essentially thinking about when we think about agricultural production, think about not just providing fuel for our bodies, but provide what it takes for our bodies to really run at optimal health, to run well. And Anne hates this analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, where if we think about you know calories as the as sort of like the gasoline for our bodies, the fuel that runs our bodies, uh, you know how well would your your non-electric car, your traditional gasoline-powered car, run without oil in the engine? 
you know, the engine needs oil to actually be able to run to use that gasoline and, and move you around. And we can think about things like phytochemicals, things like um, mineral micronutrients, uh, minerals and vitamins. We can think about the right mix of fats in our meat and dairy. As analogous to the oil in our cars, it helps our bodies keep running smoothly and keep us on the road, if you'll extend the analogy, um, uh, running, getting where we want to go, doing what we want to do, thriving. And that's where, you know, it's not just about being alive, but about being able to thrive. Yes, I could not agree more. And I think that taking the health span into consideration, I know this is something my husband and I talk about is it's not just about, I've had some health problems, but my husband is one of those people that could run on just the worst, you know, to keep that analogy going gasoline ever and, and doesn't really see the effect immediately. And I see it, I, I'm, I'm a canary. I see it really quickly. And for him, it's been this question of how do you, and I think that there is a greater question here in a societal sense of how do you find that motivation? for something that isn't of immediate effect and and just the importance of I want to be healthy throughout the majority of my life, not just until 65 and then to have that taper off. Yeah. You know, I think part of that is it, it, it can be very difficult to motivate as an individual, particularly when we're young, to think about you know adopting things that will favor our health later in life. But one might think that, oh, well, maybe there's a role for essentially social policies, governmental policies to try and encourage and foster or subsidize those kinds of practices that would enable people to better make those choices such that they could live a, a, a better quality of life and or save the government money on health care later. And so, you know, if, depending on whether you want to look at it through a humanitarian lens or a purely economic lens, I think it makes a lot of sense to think about our agricultural policies and setting those up in ways that reward farmers and enable them to adopt regenerative practices that are not only better for the land, but over the long run could help play out at trying to reduce our, 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 our social burden of healthcare costs. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think, I think that's beautiful. And I don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of your guys's time. I do have one question I ask everyone, but before I ask that, have I missed anything? I mean, there's so, I, we could sit here and talk for hours about all of the beautiful works that you guys have written together, but I want to make sure that I, I don't miss anything that's just burning a hole in your pocket. Well, I, just kind of in a nutshell, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with our work, but a, kind of a, you know, we, we call it sort of the dirt trilogy. And then what your food ate is kind of the capstone on all of that. And people are like, well, which book, what, how, what can, I can't read four books. And so sure you can, and you, so, can. you can, I did. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you can read the books in any order and, and just sort of a quick, you know, way to think about them all is that, you know, dirt is kind of the story of, sort of the destruction of soil and in the hidden half we are getting at, you know, we're really unearthing insights about, Oh, that's what happened. And so growing a revolution is we take those insights, combine it with how to, and it's the how to that tells us how are we going to reverse what happened through the history of farming and with what your food ate, it's like, well, this is the cure. We bring the soil, get it back up on its feet. We get these symbiotic partnerships. 
operating again so that the nourishment, and that's writ large, so that nourishment is flowing again from the land to the crops, from crops into animals and into people. So, so you read the books in any, any order, but that's just kind of a nutshell of sort of their, their content. And then I, I've been sitting here thinking about that gasoline analogy that I don't like. <laughs> I told you she didn't like it. <laughs> and, and I really think, Kate, that it kind of comes down to thinking about our, our health or the health of the land in, in something that I'm, you know, have a lot of experience with. And that is with trying, I've done a lot of tree planting uh, in my day in the garden or private garden and then out in various public um, spaces around here. And one of the things that was like drilled into me, and I think it's drilled into everybody is, oh, it's plant a tree day. Better get out there and plant a tree. And a lot of people have. And then they walk away from the tree. And now we're at a state with the environment and the planet that those trees that get walked away from, they're they're dying because nobody has taken the time to take care of the tree after it's planted. And so that's part of what this nourishment theme, I think, is about, that we need to be talking about how, yeah, we can have a farm, we can grow crops, we can bring animals onto the land, but it's not just for that season's harvest. How are we going to take care of this for the long term and in the long run. And so in a sense, I think we're really planting trees and it's dawning on a lot of us now that, oh, you mean we have to stick around and take care of that as well. And so, and in my, you know, view, taking care of the tree is about, you know, organic matter, mulching and growing soil life. Cause in the end, that is what the tree, that's, what's going to save the tree. You set you set the tree up for success in those relationships and the tree biology is going to take it from there. It's just set it up for success and then let it rip. I love that. I think that you just encapsulated what I consider like the word I use for this is stewardship and, and, and that there then is reciprocity between you and that tree over the course of many, many seasons in the, the fruit it brings or the energy from the sun that it harnesses and, and it's, it's, you're building reciprocity. I love that. I think that's a beautiful analogy. I ask, I ask everybody on the show It's kind of cheesy, but this is the groundwork podcast. And at the end, I like to ask everyone what it means for them to lay the groundwork. And I mean, I think that your work is really exemplifying that, right? This consideration of how we look and begin to take care of soil so that it's here for future generations, many future generations, that we increase that soil endowment. But I want to ask you, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? Um, how I look at that is basically through our work, what we're doing in terms of laying the groundwork is to try and actually connect the dots for people so that they understand the nature of the relationships, sort of where science is now, but try and do it in a way that's digestible, informative, entertaining. So that, because I think that if you're looking to change people's practices, it's much easier if they, for someone to adopt a change or do it, if they understand the why behind it. So you're not just telling them to do something, but you're basically providing them with the insight that it takes for them to go, Oh, I should be doing this to take ownership of it. So in terms of laying the groundwork, I see our role as essentially trying to provide that level of uh, information and confidence in the information. We put a lot of work into the research that goes into these books. Um, 
so that we can try and get it right in effect to empower people to then go on and make their own decisions. So we're laying the groundwork for people to decide whether or not they want to change what they're doing, whether it's farming or their buying practices or, you know, they're the policies they support as a legislator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, what comes to mind with that word is that it makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger, which I'm, I always like thinking about that because it's just, you know, it, it's interesting. And it gets to the question of why, why am I on this earth? What is it? Am I here? Like, what's my reason for being, you know, in a way. And some of us ask those questions and try to fulfill them. Others, maybe that question just kind of, you know, touches down at times in their life or their brain, and then it's off or they, they really get a hold of that. And so, right. This planet has been around for four and a half billion years or something like that. What, you know, long before me, it will be here long after me. And so I, I see sort of myself as this thread in a tapestry and being a biologist, I think like the tapestry of life, as opposed to the tapestry of rocks and things like that. But I see that they are, they are connected there. And, and so that's the commonality around all of this is that the land is sort of this like anchor. I mean, I'm sure marine organisms think about this differently, obviously, but me, I'm land-based. And I think about this tapestry of life that's gone on before me and that will go on after me. And I want to be a helpful thread in that tapestry, right? I don't want to be the one at the edge unraveling things and wrecking stuff and integrating ugly colors and wrecking the pattern, right? I want to like look around me and go, oh yeah, we've got a nice weave here. It's working. The person, you know, on the loom is not screwing it up and so on and so forth. So just the And I think we have a great ability to do that. I mean, I think something that's happened with just sort of the wave of uh, regenerative farmers and regenerative agriculture, it shows us that it's possible to, you know, once again, work with the land in ways that are productive and healthy for all involved. So laying the groundwork for change. Yeah. I love that. And thank you, Anne. I, I, I've said that many times that I feel like a thread in a tapestry and that this work has actually connected me back to what it feels to connect into something bigger and to find that soul part of right mind, body, soil, soul. Uh, it feels a little bit of one and the same. We'll have links to all the books in the show notes, but where can people, people find you? Oh yeah, we are, um, on Twitter, uh, at dig the numeral two grow. So D I G the number two grow. And, uh, also that's our website. So dig grow.com. And if people want to reach out with, uh, questions or like to get signed books or, you know, ask what, you know, what's our speaking schedule and things like that, that's the place to do it. Great. Fantastic. And I just, I can't thank you enough for your time and for writing this series of just stunning books. I really, I really can't tell you that I, in picking these up at the beginning of the summer and it was, they were the books that I had been waiting over a decade to read. And it was just so heartening to find, oh, this is, and to have it put together in a way that I mean, it it just sings. And so thank you so much for your work and for your dedicated research to this. 
Okay, well, thank you. Keep, yeah. keep spreading the word. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, we always say without readers, there's no writers. So yeah, <laughs> keep reading, keep talking. I love it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.